0: Hello and welcome to episode 1872 of Effectively Wild, the Fangrafts baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rally Fangrafts and I am joined as always by Ben Limberg of the Ringer. Ben, how are
1: you? I'm doing alright, and normally I would ask how you're doing, but I already know the answer. You are fired up. You are aggrieved so
0: much stronger than i feel let's see if i can work my way into bluster yeah i feel i feel moderately aggrieved it's not a new grievance but i am i find my existing grievance inflamed reignited stoked more reason
1: to be aggrieved because it's not new
0: yeah so ben can we talk about the futures game for a second please let's talk about the futures game within the context of getting people excited about baseball and the draft. I'd like to uh, bracket my draft complaint for closer to the draft which is that like the draft being in July remains one of the dumber things I've ever heard. No one likes this. I'd like to just say, no one likes this. I know that MLB seems to like it, but like very few people who work for them, I think, like it. Certainly very few people who work for their teams. I'd like to say in either a scouting or analysis capacity, I realize those categories can't be completely separated from one another, but I don't know a single person who works for a team who is a fan of the draft being in July. All of the the scouts have already moved on to 2023s right all of the analysts are like hey we'd like to focus on the deadline so i don't know anyone who works for a team who's like super stoked on the draft falling in july but bracket that complaint for a moment to talk about the futures game so like in in april maybe maybe it was april who could say i was like let us hope let us hope that the league doesn't do what they did last year, which was to take the Futures game, which is like an all star game of the minors, and bury it in the same day as day one of the draft, which is what they did last year. And like, there are like fangraph specific reasons to not care for that, just from a like content production and publication perspective, which I realize are not reasons that need to drive policy that's just an inconvenience <laughs> for for me and the rest of the the FanGraph staff but like you do the futures game on the same day as the draft which you are trying to make into a big marquee event despite some of the structural issues that exist for doing that and and then people don't they don't watch the the futures game ben and so i thought it would sure be nice if they didn't do that and then the monkey's paw curled And they said, fine, Meg, we won't do it. We will do the Futures game on Saturday, a perfectly good day for baseball. We will Mm -hmm. do day one of the draft on Sunday. We will do the Futures game at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. It will still, to my knowledge, only be seven innings long. Why? Ben, don't know. Don't know why. That's dumb. And we will bury it on Peacock, which like not a lot of people watch, at least in terms of its live broadcast. I am given to understand that it will be rebroadcast on MLB Network. And so are you satisfied, Megan? I'm here to say no, Ben. I'm not satisfied. I am, in Mm -hmm. fact, dismayed. So here's the thing about the Futures game. Relative to the draft which as I mentioned has some structural issues in terms of making it like a big marquee event. I think that the draft broadcasts are meaningfully like appreciably better than they used to be. I like that MLB wants to get people excited about the next wave of players but the problem is that these guys the ones who make it aren't going to make it for a couple of years minimum right? right? They are ages away from the majors leagues to the extent that they get there at all it's not like with the NFL where you're like that quarterback that your team just drafted is probably gonna play like come September get excited like you're gonna see that guy
1: and they're also already famous and prominent people right like most college baseball players
0: right and you know we haven't even thought about how little the average fan knows about the prep players right so Mm -hmm. you have that structural disadvantage which doesn't mean that you shouldn't make it like a jewel event you should because it's exciting and these guys the ones that make it are gonna be meaningful to some fans someday and I think anytime you have an opportunity to to hype the game and to start to lay the groundwork for fans knowing who players are you should take advantage of that but like we should just acknowledge what the ceiling is on the draft broadcast, which is never going to be quite the same as in other leagues, where the developmental timeline is shorter. And as you mentioned, the prospects are sort of more famous to begin with, right? Like people knew who Kumar Rocker was, like they knew who Jack Leiter was, but last year, like most of the guys who went in the draft, the average fan probably pretty far removed from them. So you have that, right? right? So that's the context of the the event that they are trying to sandwich into All-Star Week. And then... And then, Ben, you have the beautiful futures game. You have the 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 sad, lowly futures game. Why do we mistreat the futures game this way, <laughs> right? Like, first of all, I think within the context of sort of fandom, I've just said that like people are less familiar with the amateur prospects, but in terms of guys who have been an affiliated ball for a while, I think that the appetite for prospect coverage has like never been higher than it is right now, right? And so you have a roster of guys who are, on average, sort of close to the big leagues and who are quite good, right? And the the quality of that roster varies year to year because the prospect pool is not sort of uniformly deep season to season. There's going to be some variation. Not every year is going to have like really rock star guys, but like Mm -hmm. there are always going to be at least a couple dudes who are going to have not just a place on a big league roster, but a a meaningful impact on a big league roster who might be all-stars, right? They might be rookies of the year. They might be, you know, MVPs or Cy Young. Like you have guys who are going to mean something very real to the fans of their respective teams and probably in short order because a lot of the guys that they pick, in fact, most of the guys they pick are guys who are in the high minors. So you have the stars of tomorrow playing on the field of today. And we're going to bury that on Peacock for seven innings on a day, I will add, where a literal Red Sox-Yankees game is starting 15 (laughs) minutes after first pitch in the Futures game. What are we doing? It feels like we are not taking advantage of a great opportunity to make Fans excited about the guys who are going to mean something significant to them in the coming years. And I get it. Like, There's going to be, as I said, variability year to year. And sometimes that game, maybe it's not very good. Who cares? Put them on there. But Do the BP. I challenge you as a f- casual fan to watch the BP I watched at Coors last year and not be like, wow, some of these guys can really put the ball out of the ballpark and get excited about that. I have now been... To two futures games just two and i am excited to go to my third and i hope it continues and is like treated better than it is and i worry that they're just gonna like stop doing this altogether, because it's like what are you why are you anyway this is i am here to to stand up for the futures game and say mm-hmm. let let us revel in these guys like Last year's Futures game, it had Adley Richmond, it had Julio Rodriguez, it had Bobby Witt Jr., it had just a, a bushel and a peck of top 100 guys. Why are we not... So anyway, here I am <laughs> to say... We should do better by the Futures game. This is a missed opportunity. I think that the league should not monkey's pot. They should just like commit whole hog. I'm going to list animals now that they should mimic. And those animals are excited about the Futures game. That is the end of my rant.
1: <laughs> Hogs don't even have paws, Meg. You're mixing your animal <laughs> metaphors.
0: I mean, yeah.
1: <laughs> First, I will say It was fair to say you were fired up I think that was a solid 7-8 to eight minute rant You uncorked there
0: Yeah, I, I worked my way into it Yeah, <laughs> I got I got there
1: So what is your dream promotion for the Futures game? What's your list of demands here? Would you like MLB to just offer up This showcase event This jewel event And say, hey, whoever has the biggest platform Can have the rights to this game We're not going to hold out for the most money To broadcast this thing If you have a broadcast 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 network, if you're the biggest streaming service, whatever it is, we will give it to you instead of prioritizing short-term profit.
0: So that is definitely part of it. Mm -hmm. I think that they should be less concerned with whatever the upfront economics of it are which I will admit to ignorance of but I imagine that part of why this is on Peacock is probably because Peacock was like here is a pile of money that is bigger than the other piles of money
1: right and And there's already an existing Peacock MLB deal yeah correct
0: so I, I imagine that that was part of it but I think that there's like the broadcast network issue which I don't think that the the past sort of setup for was optimized around either right like I, I don't say this is a knock against MLB network but like don't don't dream so small dream big dream uh even if you're on like ESPN2 like that's in more households and is on the app you know you just navigate over to the app so I think that you should if you're the league you should like prioritize getting it as widely disseminated as possible over recouping the most amount of money so that's mm-hmm. that's the first thing but I think the bigger issue Ben is when they do it hmm. Right. Like when in the calendar, they do it, as I mentioned on this day. And this is not the only game that's going to be in that window, like 15 minutes after first pitch for the the futures game. We will have Yankees Red Sox, which I imagine a lot of baseball people will be watching. And then we have Brewers Giants. And then later that evening, we got D-backs Padres. We got Dodgers Angels. You have an all star break. You have a day of the year during All-Star Week where there is very little in terms of sports, which I don't say to knock the WNBA, but in terms of like men's sports, there isn't much. So why are you doing it on a Saturday when there are big league games? Why not do it later into the week? And yes, that means you sacrifice like a day of minor league action, maybe, but that's fine. Like, you're, I think the trade-off there makes sense. Put it after the all-star game when people are like hey there's no baseball and it's like no 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 yes there's there's a futures game
1: mhm yeah definitely agree with you on that point. We've talked about the value of diversifying the broadcasting streaming portfolio versus that being a short-sighted decision where it could also be a long-term decision where you're looking toward people cutting the cord. I don't know how much of MLB putting things on various platforms is just trying to maximize profits and how much of it is actually trying to get it in front of more or different eyeballs at least, but I'm definitely with you on the timing aspect of this. I don't know how high I think the ceiling for the Futures game as an event is, I think it's certainly higher than the ceiling for the draft, which I'm pessimistic about for some of the same reasons that you mentioned there. I'm not that into the draft myself. If I'm not that into it, I don't know how easy it would be to convince casual fans to get into it. The Futures game, though, is definitely a much easier sell. So I think there's more potential there, especially, as you said, in this era of everyone paying attention to prospects. Although I will note that this year specifically – probably has fewer marquee prospect names involved just because we're kind of at the point in the cycle where maybe some of the top prospects haven't really been built up yet because so many have been promoted recently. Jarrett Seidler wrote about this for Baseball Prospectus this week, just basically about how there's a dearth of real blue chip prospects in the minors right now, at least at the high levels, and probably mostly for a good reason, that a lot of them are in the majors now. So the future is now. We're watching these guys in the big leagues. That's exciting. Maybe it's related to some of the incentives In the new CBA, that caused people to promote prospects at a historic clip to start the season, and that's kind of continued throughout the year. So that's a positive. The downside, though, is that maybe there aren't as many great guys on the cusp whom you're desperate to see because a lot of them have made that leap already. So That's some solace, consolation, I guess, if you're disappointed about there not being more promotion of this event this season. But I agree with you. I don't see any downside to at least clearing out and giving it some space, give it some room to breathe, try to fan the flame, see how big it can get.
0: See how big it can get, Ben. We should see how big it can get because you're right. Like This year... I mean, I think there are still some guys who people are going to watch and be like, hey, that's a cool guy, like, you know, like Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson, who like Dan Mm -hmm. is convinced just broke zips. Like Dan is very (laughs) nervous that there is something that he is like a special particle that has broken the entire (laughs) projection system, right? Like you have Bobby Miller, you've got all kinds of dudes, you've got names, you've got so many (laughs) names. (laughs) <laughs> and so I just I get that like I said there's going to be some year to year variation but like assume that there's always going to be at least a couple of guys who are are worth watching and worth getting amped about and you know I, <laughs> so that's what I have to say about that I think that we're missing an opportunity and it's such an interesting contrast to and I, I don't mean to equate these events because I get that there is all kinds of Draw to the world's baseball classic, right? But like the league is has announced the venues for the twenty twenty three World Baseball Classic, which we are all thrilled is back. That is so exciting. Mm-hmm. It had taken a two-year hiatus because of the pandemic. It's coming back in 2023. We get to see so many different cool players or the guys that we know from the big leagues or guys who play for national teams who we are less familiar with. Everybody gets amped about this. There are so many good WBC memories, but it's like when when the schedule presents you with an opportunity to get excited, even if it is relative to some of the other events on a smaller scale a la the Futures game I just think that we should take it cause like uh, you know it's baseball with guys whose names you will know soon not all of them and not all of them to the degree that they have been projected either by prospect prognosticators or by the projection systems which again Gunnar Henderson may have just broken but like some of them are gonna be good some of them are gonna be really good they're gonna be names that you're like aha a name I know I'm so glad I watched that guy in the futures game there was a year where I am pretty sure that like a lot of the guys who have gotten MVP votes in the last couple of years were just all on a futures game roster together. Mm-hmm. So it's very exciting. And some of these dudes, depending on where you live in the country, like you're not gonna necessarily see them. This might be your your first opportunity to really see them without an MILB TV subscription, right? Like there were guys who I saw for the first time in person by going to the futures game. So it's exciting. We should I don't know. We're always talking about how we should like get excited about stuff. So like, let's get excited about some stuff. This stuff.
1: Yeah. You'll be there at least. You'll I will be excited. there. That's something. I, it's
0: the fir- this is the first time that I will have had opportunity to go to Dodger Stadium, which I'm very excited about. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've never, I had never, I've never, I had never, what? I've never been there before.
1: <laughs> how did will get, work?
0: <laughs> yeah. How did, what, what are verbs? So yeah, I will be there, which will be fun, but you know what will be more fun? Watching the Futures game.
1: Yeah. Well, from your lips to Rob's ears, we'll see if your grievance gets heard here.
0: I don't think he listens to... Well, (laughs) I don't think he listens to this podcast because I think we would have heard about it.
1: Grievances about baseball in general.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I definitely don't think he listens to me. I don't think that it being moved to Saturday was my doing. I want to be clear. I was one of a chorus of voices saying, hey, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. We had to, I had to like run almost back to my hotel for draft stuff. It's just going to be a lot better to be less stressed, although I am a little bit nervous about getting in and out of Dodger Stadium on the heels of a celebrity softball game, which is, I think, the same day as the Futures game. In LA, which means they will probably get real celebrities.
1: <laughs> yes. Probably. Sometimes
0: they get the celebrity softball game, and I'm like, "Are you actually famous enough to be here?" Yeah.
1: This time they don't have to travel, so no. okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: they'll just be right there. That that'll be that'll be great for them. So that is that is uh, the conclusion of my rant.
1: It was a good one. Thank so you. I want to change the subject for a second to superheroes, okay. which. Doesn't sound like a natural transition, but I think I can make a convincing segue here. So the Futures game is the origin story of MLB superstars. Yeah. So often a trope in superhero origin stories is baseball. In fact, a young coming-of-age superhero throwing a baseball, I have noticed, has become a hallmark of recent on-screen superhero fiction. Interesting. And I noticed this. Because I was writing something about the end of season three of The Boys. The finale is airing this week. I won't spoil anything, but there is one scene at the very start of this episode where a young character named Ryan, he is the son of Homelander, who is the superpowered antagonist of the series, and Ryan is superpowered himself, and he's just kind of experimenting coming into his powers here. And in the first scene of this episode, he throws a baseball, and he throws a baseball very far because he has super strength, and oh, thus no he can throw it farther than Itro, farther than Ioannis Cespedes, farther than anyone who has a great arm. Jordan Alvarez apparently <laughs> has one. It was better than the Jordan Alvarez throw, and so I won't say who shares this scene with Ryan, but the person who sees him throw the ball says, Whoa, I knew your fastball would come in sooner or later. And I think there are a few previous examples of this being repeated. One was actually in an earlier episode of The Boys, season one, episode six, Homelander himself, just uh, lightly tossed a ball, kind of like a, a sidearm flip sort of, and it went soaring off at super speed. And someone who th- saw him throw it said, that is going to kill somebody when it lands in Boston, which is always kind of the question, right? I mean, there were people the other night who were hit near Oakland's ballpark because people had been firing guns for the 4th of July Not in anger or violence in this case, but just in a celebratory way because it's America and we shoot guns for any old reason. And they were hit by the falling bullets and some people were injured. That's always the question when a superhero is just lobbing a baseball somewhere. It's like what goes up must come down at some point. That's going to kill someone. So this happened in season one, so maybe the season three scene is a callback to that earlier episode, but it's not just the boys. This also happened in the other Amazon Prime subverting superhero trope superhero show, Invincible. Where there's a scene in the first season of that show where another coming-of-age superhero just growing into his powers and his dad are playing catch in midair, except that they are throwing the ball to each other back-to-back so that they throw the ball and it circumnavigates the globe before it gets to their catch partner here. And I know that people have had questions about the physics of that and why does the ball not achieve escape velocity and enter orbit or leave orbit? How does it keep circumnavigating the globe here? And also, why does it make a sound if it's traveling at supersonic speed, etc.? There are always uh, questions about physics when it comes to superheroes, but that is another example. And then in Superman Returns, the 2006 movie, I think it is, Clark Kent is reminiscing about how he was coming of age and was mastering his powers. And he picks up a baseball and his dog goes out to fetch. And then Superman Clark Kent throws the ball, except he throws it so far that the poor dog just trots a few steps and then stands there because it cannot see the ball anymore because it went so far. So this is at least four fairly recent examples of superheroes tossing baseballs and them going very far. And I think there are probably other examples, I'm sure, in the comics, of course, but maybe I'm missing some on screen as well. I think this is an example of what we've talked about in the past, maybe also in relation to baseball coming up in Avengers movies or Doctor Strange, where it just seems like baseball is still overrepresented in film just relative to its status in American culture currently And we've speculated about the reasons why that might be, whether it is just the remnant of baseball as the national pastime and what it means to the history and culture. Or maybe it has something to do with the fact that you can see baseball players' faces and so forth. And there are lots of potential reasons why that could be. It could also be that a lot of the people who have made movies are old white guys who are kind of in the (laughs) baseball-liking cohort. I think that
0: that has at least something to do with it. (laughs)
1: Yes, I would think so. So that may change as time goes on. but. You just see so much more baseball, I think, in non-sports related movies than you do in other sports still. And this superhero example is a a good case of that, I think, because I don't really recall recent examples of like superheroes tossing footballs around the globe. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't do that. Right. So maybe it's just that a baseball, you can wrap your hand around it. You can throw it really far like you can throw a baseball farther than you can throw a football, I guess. And it is also a, a type of ball that you are supposed to throw as opposed to, I don't know, a soccer ball or a tennis ball or something that is not normally thrown. And you can just whip it and it will go off into the distance. And probably everyone, even that they haven't played baseball, has at least held a baseball and knows what it's like to throw one. It's a very satisfying right. type of ball to hold and to throw, even if you're not actually playing baseball. So... I think that this is just a continued example of baseball's ongoing over-representation on screen, which I'm fine. I'm all for there being more baseball movies and baseball shows by our very limited, specialized, effectively wild definition of those terms. But it's great to see. So I love the trope of superhero origin stories that encompass and incorporate throwing a baseball very far.
0: Yeah. I think you made the segue successfully. Thanks. I'm trying to think I think it is because like it's more relatable to be like, a baseball. I have thrown it than like a football, a perfect spiral. It's funny what we can conceptualize a normal person being able to do as they become a superhero. Like I can imagine getting super strength and being able to throw a baseball very, very far, but like throwing a perfect spiral seems out of reach to me. Or like palming a basketball seems like it would be out of reach because I still Assume I would have my normal small hands relati- even if I So <laughs> right. unless my superpower like, was Spider-Man stickum. Hands. Yeah. yeah, unless I mm-hmm. had stickum powers then it then it's yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or Mr. Fantastic stretchy, yeah, something.
0: Yeah. They still haven't made a good Fantastic 4 movie, have they?
1: No, they're, they're working on it. It's just tr- like <laughs> They
0: they do keep trying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I have a even more natural segue I think to the next thing I want to talk Are you going to talk up, about Shoei is- Tani? Yeah. <laughs> Not just Otani, actually. There's been this angels Marlin series going on, and so we've gotten to see both Otani at the peak of his powers and his opponent, Sandy Alcantara, yeah. at the peak of his powers, which are also pretty prodigious. So yep. both of those guys have put on great displays this week. Alcantara as a pitcher, Otani as both a pitcher and a hitter. So Otani's on a real roll right now. Really on both sides of the ball, but particularly as a pitcher, and it has yielded a whole new rash of fun facts, some of which are more fun than others, right? I mean, there was one after his most recent outing where he shut down the Marlins, he gave up one run, unearned, over seven innings, struck out ten. Also reached base three times, stole base, drove in a couple runs, and so there is a fun fact going around about how he's the first player since RBI became official in 1920 to have 10 strikeouts as a pitcher, 2 RBI as a batter, and a stolen base. Okay, that's a genre of Otani fun fact where you're just like lumping together a bunch of statistical categories in a way that most people don't fill up the stat sheet the way that he does. So, all right, I'm fine with that one. But there have also been some, I think, more impressive ones just about the run he's on on the mound. So there are various permutations of this stat, like the Angels PR Twitter account was tweeting, four pitchers in AL history have had three consecutive starts with 10-plus strikeouts and no earned runs allowed.'" And in the NL, only two pitchers have done it, so that's a pretty exclusive group. And then pitchers to go 5-0 and with 46-plus strikeouts and one or fewer earned runs allowed in a five-game span. All right, that is sort of massaging the minimums there to have a fairly exclusive club. And then it also tweeted that he has joined Johan Santana as the only AL pitchers to go 4-0 and with a zero ERA and 40-plus strikeouts in a four-game span in the divisional era. Only two pitchers did it prior to that So if you're incorporating the win-loss record, I'm a little less interested in that, although it is surprising that the Angels have actually won some games while he was doing his thing, which is not always the case. But he hasn't given up an earned run in almost 27 innings, almost three games worth of innings. Maybe the best version of the stat is that he is, I think, the ninth pitcher since earned runs became official in 1913 to have 40-plus strikeouts and no earned runs in a four-start span, although there's an era effect there the first first one was Ray Culp in 1968. Obviously, in earlier eras, you had lower strikeout totals. You had pitchers pitching more innings over the typical four-game span, so it was harder to allow zero-earned runs, even if it was a lower-scoring era. I also like the Jeremy Frank stat that Otani has both the highest slugging percentage as a hitter with runners in scoring position in the past 50 years, and the lowest slugging percentage allowed with runners in scoring position as a pitcher in the last 50 years. Minimum 400 plate appearances, 200 batters face, not bad. And he is now leading the American League in baseball reference war among pitchers or position players. That's his combined war. Fangraph's combined war, I believe he is trailing Aaron Judge by a tenth of a win, right now and also trailing Paul Goldschmidt and Manny Machado in the NL by a tenth of a win. So he's right there. He is about to perhaps overtake everyone for the MLB war lead and the AL war lead again for the second consecutive season. So one thing I'm wondering, if he does do that, and Judge, of course, he just hit his 30th home run. He's still having a fantastic (laughs) season. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep it's pretty good right it was a grand
0: slam too wasn't it
1: <laughs> it was yes uh, him and yeah. Aaron hicks yes on the same day yes they became uh i saw a katie sharp tweet about this but i, yeah. I believe the effectively wild discord group had it first yes <laughs> Although, i think you're right <laughs> they were not credited but <laughs> i think that uh <laughs> this was the first time in mlb history that two different players with the same first name hit grand slams in yes. the same game so that's something i guess But yeah, Aaron Judge, he's still pretty much tearing the cover off the ball. So what I wonder, I mean, now that we're at roughly the halfway mark of the season, if we were to handicap the MVP race, which uh, we don't do a lot of early prognostication about award wins, but I am kind of curious about this race in particular because I think Judge got off to a really hot start and was the prohibitive favorite. Otani's been coming on. Jose Ramirez is lurking. There are other players in the mix there. But I wonder, basically, how much Otani would have to surpass Judge by, let's say, in combined war to win this thing again. Because we are in an era where voters pay pretty close attention to war, typically, Mm -hmm. but... Maybe there's a little bit of Angels fatigue, (laughs) understandably. The Angels have uh, won a lot of MVPs without being a good baseball team. Maybe there is interest and an appetite for someone who is not an Angel, especially because the Angels are losing again and are probably not going to make the playoffs at this point. They're not out of it, but they are certainly not on pace to make the playoffs currently. So... Is there a bit of a, well, Otani just did this last year, and yeah, it's still spectacular, but there's nothing like the first time, and so maybe the field will be opened, voters' minds will be opened to someone else who is in the same war vicinity? I mean, if he finishes like a win or two ahead of anyone else like he did last year, maybe that changes the conversation a little bit, and maybe he would have to do that in order to edge out someone like Judge, assuming, of course that Judge roughly maintains his pace and has something close to a, a 60 homer season. Like I just kinda wonder how good would Otani have to be? Would he have to be even better than last year if he just repeats last year or even comes up a little short compared to last year? Will everyone still be as impressed and say, yeah, this is amazing. He's gotta win the MVP no matter what, or will it be another angel? Again, eh, maybe someone else this time. Oh
0: so I have conflicting thoughts about this. I think that on the one hand, it's hard for me to put myself in a position where I care about it being a bunch of angels, right? Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I I have a hard time thinking I care about that. I do think that the answer to my question does depend, (laughs) this is gonna be an obvious way of phrasing this, like it does depend who the other really good baseball players will like duh, of course it does. (laughs) I think that my my baseline assumption is this, If Otani is within sort of half a win of the combined AL leaderboard in any given year, I just think he's like the guy you have to give the award to. Not only because like we know that the the error bars on war are such that like, you know, he is he is effectively leading the American League in war. Now that means that Aaron judges too right because they're only you know they have mm-hmm. 0.1 wins worth of separation and you know Jordan is at 3.9 wins and Raphael Devers is at 4.1 so like they're all effectively the same guy but I think that when you take into they're not the same guy in terms of the shape of their production being the same just to be very clear <laughs> or, or the shape, shape or the shape of them being <laughs> yes. the same although we do have a yeah. bunch of we do have a bunch of big strapping guys uh, yes. at the top of that leaderboard don't we what I mean to say <laughs> Is that I think that when you take into consideration the acknowledged sort of error bars on war as a concept, and then you take into consideration what I feel comfortable saying is, like, war not being able to, as it is currently constituted, fully capture the value of Otani because of how he is arriving at his, at this moment, as we record, 4.2 wins. Like, There might end up being fatigue with it being the same guy. But if he's doing this, like, he's just the AL MVP. I think he's just the AL MVP. Now, now, Aaron Judge plays for the Yankees. He is having a superlative season in his own right. And he has the potential home run chase element to his candidacy. So I don't know how voters would separate those things out. I think that like the pull of a very good Yankee potentially meeting or exceeding a home run record in a walk year is going to be a super compelling narrative, as it should be. And I think that the idea of an incredible two-way player being completely superlative Again, also very compelling. So I guess that my answer is I don't know how voters will come down on this, but I think that both of those cases have a lot to recommend them and that the conversation around it might, might, Ben, actually be fun. It might Mm. actually be fun, unlike most years where it makes me want to never go on the Internet again. (laughs) So like – I'm very stoked on this because not as excited as I am about the futures game, but um that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true at all. But like this is this is great. Like it is super exciting when there is legitimate debate to be had about two guys who are doing something very special but the shape of that specialness is distinct from each other. Like, that is super fun. This gives us an opportunity to appreciate two dudes having just, like, tremendous seasons. And I don't say two dudes to slight Rafael Devers or Jordan Alvarez, but I think that if things kind of continue apace, despite the great years that those guys are having, this this will end up probably being viewed as sort of a two-man race. And, you know, here I am, once again, discounting Jose Ramirez even yep. though we tell people not to do that all the time but here i am being like i don't know it's just a two-guy race and jose ramirez is like what In- it's
1: okay i forgot to mention devers before and you forgot to mention ramirez but between the two of us we- we've mentioned, <laughs> we mentioned all them, the so- <laughs> we've mentioned all
0: the guys and can we just talk about how my trout is still like like
1: still very much in the neighborhood yeah
0: (laughs) he's like hanging out he's like what do i have to do yeah get some respect around here so i don't know that i have an answer i i think that there will be a there will be people who sort of settle into their camps on either side of that in terms of which is more worthy but i i don't think that people like saying it, it should be aaron judger like making a silly argument like he's no. been spectacular this <laughs> year's just been really really good at baseball and people who are like show me Otani, yay! it's like yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah i do wonder if it will help otani that yes he's the same guy but he's really two in one And the balance of power between the two has shifted a little. Yes. Now, by the end of the season, who knows? His offensive stats may look a lot like they did last year. He started slow. He's kind of come on at the plate. But the pitching has been much improved, at least compared to his full season stats last year. Yeah. And so that, I mean, he's a Cy Young candidate outside of the MVP race, right? I mean, I don't think he's been better than Shane McClanahan or Kevin Gossman to this point. But he is Third in Fangraph's Pitcher War in the AL right now and and top 10 in the majors. I mean, he is in that conversation purely as a pitcher, despite... The six-man rotation. So yeah. McClanahan's pitch more innings, even Gossman has pitched more innings. It's hard for Otani to make up that gap, but on an inning per inning basis, he has been fantastic. So if he's getting Cy Young consideration and certainly would get Cy Young votes if the season ended today, yes. then maybe that boosts his candidacy yeah. a little bit too. Not that it necessarily matters or that it should matter what the distribution of offensive war and pitching war is, but there's a little more novelty there, whereas yes. if it were just a carbon copy of last season, it would be like, well, that was amazing. That was perhaps the most impressive season ever. But this is the sequel. The sequel's is right. uh, almost never as good as the original and maybe not as shocking and spectacular. So there is a new wrinkle to it. He's showing a, a different or at least improved side of himself. So yeah. perhaps that helps.
0: Yeah, it very, it very well might.
1: Now as for Alcantara, he is leading actually the majors in baseball reference war because baseball reference pitching war is very dependent on just pure run prevention right. and inning totals and he has pitched many more innings than anyone else and he has prevented runs <laughs> very effectively yeah. in those innings he has a sub 2 ERA in 123 and a third innings thus far. He's still very high in FanGraphs war as well. He isn't as much of a standout and an outlier in FIP just because his strikeout rate is somewhat lower. Perhaps uh, you could even call his strikeout rate pedestrian, frankly, in this day and age. And so he is getting it done with good control and lots of ground balls and maybe a little luck on batted balls as well. But he's been amazing. He's been fantastic. He is probably your prohibitive NL Cy Young Award favorite right now. There are people who could catch up in theory but he has a pretty hefty lead yeah. to this point in the season so that's been pretty impressive too and i have maybe a, a mid-episode stat blast here about each of these guys because i was wondering one thing about each of them and i have fun facts to report will the
0: take a data if i something like DRA. Tease out some interesting tip, but discuss it at length and lengthen, analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's today's the blast.
1: So, the Stat Blast brought to you, as always, by Stat powered by Baseball Reference. And you can use Stathead tool at StatHead.com to look up all sorts of fun and interesting stats about baseball and about other sports and leagues. And we encourage everyone to go to StatHead.com, sign up, use our coupon code WILD20 to get a $20 discount on a $80 one-year subscription. So for this stat blast, one thing I have heard a frequent refrain about the Angels this year is that... They have Trout and Otani having these fantastic seasons, and they're still pretty bad. And they're still pretty bad for obvious reasons, right? The rest of the roster. (laughs) So actually, Dan Samborski had a a very unfun fact for Angels fans, at least, in his uh, Zips update for the AL this week at FanCrafts, where he noted that the Angels roster has 16 players below replacement level over the last 30 days. So... Most of their roster, by by a good margin, has been below replacement level over the past month. Contrast that, he writes, with the Yankees, who have only two sub-replacement level players over that same span, with one of them, Miguel Andujar, playing in just two games. So yeah, that will drag you down. Yeah. If you have yeah. a Stars and Scrubs roster and your scrubs are that bad, it's hard to outweigh that. But I have wondered what precedent there is for a team having two teammates that productive and still having a losing record. So we could formulate this in various ways. Right now, Otani is on pace for, I think, an 8-plus war season. Trout has been slumping lately, and so he's down to about a 7.5 win pace, <laughs> a mere 7.5 war pace. So if we were just to set the minimum at 2-7 plus win players on the same team there have been according to kenny jacklin who ran this query for me at baseball reference 18 teams in the al or nl that had two players post seven plus baseball reference war and still have a losing record i think only four of them were with two position players doing Mm. it Although maybe yeah. that makes sense because there are fewer position players than pitchers at least in this era, and I guess uh, Otani is not purely a position player yeah, I was either, say. <laughs> but there have been four of those I'll, I'll just uh, I'll put the list online and link on the show page, but just to go down here, starting from the best sub 500 winning percentage to the worst. If we are even going to count this, there was the 1889 Philadelphia Quakers. Charlie Buffington had an 11.1 war and Ben Sanders had Buffington. 7.5. Yeah, Buffington. They were 63 and 64. That's a 496 winning percentage. Then at 494, 80 and 82, we have the 1964 Dodgers, who are one of only two teams to have two 8-plus war players and still have a losing record which could very well happen for the angels this year so willie davis had 8.3 war that year and don drysdale had 8.3 and they were still 80 and 82 so put a pin in that they're one of the two then we have 1912 cleveland vian Gregg and shoeless joe jackson they had 7.2 and 9.5 respectively a 490 winning percentage for them Then you have the 54 Phillies, Richie Ashburn and Robin Roberts. They had a 487 winning percentage. Recently, the 2019 Rangers, Lance Mm. Lynn and Mike Miner, had seven plus wins apiece, but 481 winning percentage. And, you know, this is a a product of baseball reference pitching war, which not everyone loves, and I do prefer Fangraph's pitching war myself, but... 1992 Cubs, you had Greg Maddox and Ryan Sandberg. They ended up with a 481 winning percentage, as did the 1987 Red Sox, also 78 and 84. And they were the other team that had two eight-plus war players and still could not break even. Wade Boggs had 8.3 war that year. Roger Clemens had 9.4 and still a losing team. Then 1936 Red Sox, West Farrell, and Lefty Grove, 481. 1890 Giants, the immortal Jack Glasscock. Not immortal, unfortunately, but his name will live on forever. And Amos Rusi, they were eighty one winning percentage too. Ben, Ben, <laughs> yes.
0: What if What if he had a glass ass too?
1: <laughs> I believe I may have made that joke of the glass ass I think you syndrome did, episode. I... How could you resist? Yeah, but you know what? I
0: wanted to make it again. Sorry to interrupt your train of thought, Please. but I, yes. this is what Any I had time. to contribute. Yeah, yeah. Black
1: glass cock comes up. Please feel free to remake that joke. Then. <laughs> We have another unique team. The 1932 Giants are the only team ever to have three seven-plus war players and still have a losing record. So how about that? Carl Hubble, 7.4 war, Mel Ott, 8.3, and Bill Terry, 7.7. And somehow they went 72 and 82. That's a 40-68 winning percentage. So maybe that makes the Angels look good. You can actually do it with three players. Then you have the 1975 White Sox, Goose Gossage and Jim Cott, 466. 1927 White Sox, Ted Lyons and Tommy Thomas, 458. 1977 Angels, there is an Angels precedent, Nolan Ryan and Frank Tanana, 457 winning percentage. 2001 Rockies, Todd Helton and Larry Walker, 451. 1987 Dodgers, Oral Hershiser and Bob Welsh, 451. 1965 Cubs, Ron Santo and Billy Williams, 444. Second to last, 1996, Bernard Gilkey and Lance Johnson, 438 winning percentage. Who knew that Bernard Gilkey had an eight-war season in there somewhere? And finally, top or bottom of the list, it's another Angels team, appropriately. The 1993 California Angels, Chuck Finley, 7.1 war, Mark Langston, 8.5. They went 71-91. and That is a 438 winning percentage. So it has been done before. Perhaps it has been surpassed in some ways before, although there is, I suppose, the variability of war and the vagaries of that stat and the difficulty of quantifying defense and some of the quirks of baseball reference pitching war and all that. So if you want to say, like, if Trout and Otani end up with 7-plus war... We can be pretty confident that they were really that good and that valuable because they're Trout Notani, and, Otani and right. we've seen them do that before. So there's not a lot of like uh, small sample statistical uncertainty. It's Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. So if they do it it would be yet another embarrassment and poor reflection on the Angels roster composition. But it really is sad because we were watching the Angels game as Otani was pitching on Wednesday, and my wife, who mostly watches Angels games when she watches baseball, every time we watch the Angels now, it seems like I am introducing her to new players. (laughs) It's like, who's that? Let me introduce you to Jonathan VR. Jonathan VR, come on down. You are a Los Angeles Angel now. or. Monty Harrison, you are an angel now. Who knew suddenly these people appear and uh, sometimes in David McKinnon's case, at least they're batting cleanup. But anyway, for anyone who was wondering about whether that uh, ignominy has been achieved before, it has, which, you know, does not make it easier to bear necessarily, but it's not unprecedented.
0: No, but it feels i think it feels different when you're you're thinking about guys who like in trout's case might just he just might be the best baseball player ever Right. Mm -hmm. Like it it does register a little bit differently, even if there are other circumstances where, you know, like someone has been spectacular or two someones have been spectacular. It just it hits you different when it's literally Mike Trout and Joey Otani. When it's like the guy who might be the best who's ever done it, and the guy who is doing it differently than all but a handful of guys throughout the history of the game. Like that feels like you should most especially try to be good.
1: <laughs> yep. You'd think. You'd think. So here's my Alcantara stat class. So one thing that's interesting about his season is that the distribution of his pitch types is extremely even. You never mm. know what he's going to throw because he doesn't really favor anything overall. I mean, certainly if he's ahead or behind, he will throw certain types of pitches more often than others. But you just look at the overall distribution – On his Fangraphs page right now, according to Pitch Info, he's thrown his four-seamer 25.1% of the time, his sinker 23.9% of the time, his changeup 26.9% of the time, and his slider 23.9% of the time. So (laughs) the range here is very small. His least-used pitches have been thrown about 24% of the time, and his most-used pitch has been thrown about 27% of the time. And so I got curious, is this rare? Is this unusual? I should note also that he is credited at least with throwing curveballs 0.1% of the time. He has thrown curveballs more frequently in past seasons and he's basically just put that pitch in his pocket this season and it seems to have benefited him. If anything, he didn't get the greatest results on the curveball in the past. So Maybe he has thrown the odd curveball here and there, rarely, sometime this season, if that's not a classification issue. But basically, he has four pitches, and he throws them almost equally. So one way that I looked at this first with the help of Lucas Apostolaris of Baseball Prospectus, who ran these queries for me, first way was just to see, okay, what is the lowest percentage on record for a most frequently thrown pitch. So this is going back to 2008. And the least used, most frequently thrown pitch, if that makes any sense, (laughs) is Jesse Chavez in 2017. He threw his four-seam fastball 22.4% of the time. This is as a starter. Lucas just looked as a starter exclusively and set the minimum at 100 innings. So Chavez, he threw his four-seamer 22.4% of the time when he was working as a starter, and that was his most common pitch. Now, he had some even less frequently used pitches than Alcantara does. He was throwing some in the single digits, let's say. And so that didn't quite get at the distribution that I was looking for here because it's not just that Alcantara doesn't favor any one pitch really disproportionately, but also like his least used pitch, he doesn't use rarely. He uses it about as often as his most used pitch. And so the second way we looked at it was to use the standard deviation of pitch type rate. So for this, we just tossed out any sub 1% usage rates like Alcantara has with his curveball because that's just such a rarity and it could be classification issues. So we tossed those out and we just looked at standard deviation of your other pitch type rates. And here, he really does stand out. So this is what I was getting at. He's actually second all-time thus far this season out of, oh, more than 1,700 pitcher seasons qualifying going back to 2008. So the standard deviation of his pitch type usage is just like 1.4 percentage points. And the only pitcher who has surpassed that – In 100 innings in a season as a starter is Edinson Volquez in 2012, who had also a a 1.4 percentage point standard deviation if you round it up, but just slightly less than Alcantara's. So... Volquez had the same sort of deal. Now, he was not having a a Cy Young season at that point, so it was not as notable. But if you look at his pitch type distribution that year, you see the same sort of pattern. He threw his four-seamer 26.3% of the time, his sinker 22.8% of the time, his changeup 24.8% of the time, and his curveball 24.2% of the time. So, Extremely democratic distribution there. I I guess you could say that sinkers and four-seamers are both fastballs, but... They are very distinct types of fastballs, so I think it's okay to count them separately here. So, no one else is really even close to Volquez and Alcantara. The next closest is 2016 Cole Hamels, and his standard deviation was almost two and a half times as large as Alcantara's. The difference between the second-ranked Alcantara and the third-ranked Hamels is as great as the difference between the third-ranked Hamels and the 35th-ranked guy. That is impressive. I I think it makes Alcantara perhaps more fun to watch just because he's so unpredictable and you are so regularly seeing him work in these four different types of pitches. Maybe it makes him more effective just because it's hard to anticipate what he will throw. You can't really ever just sit on something and say, I'm going to look for this because there's a really great chance that you're going to be wrong and that he's going to throw one of those other three pitches. So It seems like it would be a competitive advantage, but also a challenge because he has to have four pitches that are good enough that it even makes sense to throw them all that regularly and not to privilege one over the others. So there's that and you have to retain your feel for them and your grips and keep practice and everything. And then you also just, like, have decisions to make on right. every pitch, and I guess that's partly on his catcher, too, so maybe it helps to have someone like Gold lover Jacob Stallings back there, but... They have a lot of things to weigh on every pitch because he could throw so many things. There isn't an obvious, like, you know, some flamethrowing reliever comes in and it's like, oh, well, he's ahead in the count. He's going to throw a slider. Like, he almost always throws a slider and you don't want to be too predictable ever, but they have established patterns if you only have a couple pitches. But Alcantara, not really. So I imagine that that makes him hard to read, but probably also a high degree of difficulty to do what he's doing at the level that he's doing it
0: yeah i think that that's right i think that it garners a
1: special appreciation Mm -hmm. yeah so everyone appreciate shohei otani we know you do already but also appreciate sandy alcantara who he's a marwin so maybe he's not as obvious an object of appreciation but he should be he's really good and special too
0: would just say like i know that there has been some discourse which is my very favorite thing about him starting for the nl versus tony gonsolin and like i think that what we should all just remember about the all-star game even though i went on a very impassioned rant on behalf of the Futures game which is essentially the same thing but for the minor leagues is that like it doesn't really matter who starts the game and it's at dodger stadium so if they make it tony gonsolin because he gets to start in front of the home crowd it doesn't it's fine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make Sandy any worse. It doesn't make Tony Gonsolin any better. They're both very good. It's going to be fine. They're going to throw some mittings. Everyone's going to be like, all-stars, yay. They're going to wear the weird hats, half of which looks like, look like they have an asterisk on them. Have you seen these all-star hats, Ben? No. Ben, I want you to Google them. We're okay. going to do it live. We're doing it live right now. We're going to Google MLB All-Star 2022 hat and you'll probably not get it because everything goes through fanatics now and so it doesn't work, but...
1: Oh, I see it. Huh. Yeah,
0: and so here's the thing about these hats is that they like they decided to put the stars like in a place that was meant to be sort of more aesthetically pleasing, but it just ends up looking like half of them have an asterisk. Like,
1: Yeah, it definitely does.
0: It definitely does. It makes it look like, oh, are you an all-star or an injury replacement? Who could say? So anyway... Yeah.
1: Especially the ones where the asterisk is up high. Yeah. Right? Like after oh, yeah. the logo... Like, Like, I'm looking at Buje's one, and it's, like, under the bill of the bird, right, yeah. like on the left side. Yeah. And so that doesn't really look like an asterisk. That looks to me like a star. Right. And then I guess if you have like the Atlanta A and yeah. the star is on the left of the A, that right. still looks d- a little like an asterisk to me. But,
0: but, it, <laughs> but less.
1: Yeah. But then you see like the Yankees or the Cardinals. Yeah. And it's just their logo with a little asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Or the Angels for that matter. So yeah. yeah, that very much looks like an asterisk to me.
0: Yeah, it seems like it was maybe, you know, like, look, we're not here to criticize. I mean, I am actively criticizing. It took like weeks for us to be like, oh, that trip might look like it is a fart. So, <laughs> you know, we get that it's hard, but mm-hmm. somebody wasn't like, is he actually an all-star? Or is that, is that to say, uh, you know, I don't know. What's a bad team? The A's. Actually, the A's one looks cool because they've replaced the comma, the apostrophe mm. rather, with a star. Yeah, that's but okay. That one's fine, but like you know, it's gonna say like Jose Ramirez. Are you an all-star? I don't know. And it's like, yeah, he sh- he sure is. Or or the mm-hmm. Rockies. You know, whoever the Rockies end up sending. Yeah,
1: hey, the Guardians are, are pretty good. Don't diss the Guardians.
0: Yeah, that one is probably more apt because mm-hmm. you know, if any if any team is gonna be like, well, we get to send someone. That's what the rules say. Or like the Reds. Some of these are, or the Cubs. Some of these. You feel like you're saying something, you know. Yeah. You feel <laughs> yeah, like you're. Right. You feel like you're really saying something with that hat. I know. So.
1: It's it's almost a relief that the Astros asterisk I, is to, yeah. the, to the left, oh. to the right, not to the right, oh, because otherwise. Yes.
0: <laughs> and, and it makes me wonder if that one in particular, somebody yeah. was like, "Look, we gotta." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we really gotta be careful here because
1: Yeah, there must have been a conversation about that one. <laughs>
0: but then extend the convo to the poor Reds. You know, mm-hmm. they're having a hard enough time. They don't need they don't need to be made to feel worse.
1: hmm Also, I, I meant to mention you noted that Aaron Hicks had hit a grand slam. That one was off a position player. That was off of Josh Van Meter, whom we talked about when he was an emergency catcher earlier this year. He has also sometimes been an emergency pitcher. Can't even call it an emergency pitcher anymore because position players pitch in non-emergencies constantly, which is kind of what I wanted to ask about. If that had been the other Aaron Who had been hitting that Grand Slam? It wasn't, but if it had been, and I believe John Carlos Stanton also homered off of Van Meter in that game, but position player pitchers are pitching more often than ever, and they're pitching very badly very badly this year. Oh, it's so bad. (laughs) Which makes sense because the more you use them, like the average velocity of a position player's pitch has gone down over the years, maybe just because they're trying less hard because it's just such an accepted part of the game now, but also probably because the pool of potential position player pitchers has expanded so much that like in the past you might have actually had to have an arm to get put out there and not embarrass the team now it's like nope you can embarrass the team it's fine you can just go out there and lob a pitch at 30 something or 40 something miles per hour and everyone's fine with this apparently but what i wondered is like if that had been judge or if it happens that judge hits one off a position player pitcher later this year for all i know he already did i don't recall but If there's a case where it starts to swing award races, like I I wonder whether we get to the point where there is some sort of statistical adjustment that you might make for quality of competition or even just like excluding stats. I mean, it's not fair to exclude the stats against position players, pitchers, but if you were to build that into a war model in some way, which currently I believe neither baseball reference nor fangraphs accounts for the quality of opposing pitchers, let's say, when assessing a hitter's performance. So if you hit a home run off an ace, it counts just as much toward those right. wars as it does if you hit a home run off of Josh Van Meter. And right. there are various reasons for that. And I should say that I think baseball prospectus and, and open war, they may actually make some adjustments for quality of competition that the more often cited wars do not. And, and it's just it's a philosophical thing. It's a of calculation thing it's a uh, where do you draw the line right. in abstracting these stats i mean we are already making adjustments for ballpark, let's say. And so you could say, well, why not make adjustments for quality of competition too? Some players are on harder divisions. They face better pitchers. They face better hitters. So why not do that? But it's hard to know where to stop then. You know, right. do you start to use expected stats instead of actual stats? I right. mean, the way you use fit for pitchers, do you start using xwoba for hitters instead of the actual results? I mean, you could just keep slicing finer and finer and make it more abstract and I'd be all for having that as an option, I suppose, but I think it would be a harder sell for some fans and it's already not always the easiest sell. Anyway, just saying that as position player pitchers, Make up a greater portion of the innings pitched in baseball. And it's still just a tiny sliver. But like Rob Maines has been doing these monthly breakdowns at Baseball Prospectus where he looks at the league run environment and then adjusts for both the zombie runner and position player pitchers because both of those things really do significantly skew the stats because yeah. the rate of scoring and extra innings is just so inflated by the zombie runner. That it really does pump up the league overall run numbers and position players do to an extent. So when he tried to adjust for that in his most recent monthly update for June, it took off like a tenth of a run scored per game. Yeah. If it's just, you know, you're looking at what happens in the actual like first nine innings when real pitchers are pitching as opposed to wacky baseball. Right. So. I do wonder, like, maybe it's just still not a prominent enough part of the game to go to these lengths and actually make some sort of adjustment, but... Who knows, like if maybe if some MVP candidate happened to be feasting on position player pitchers one year and it just like yeah. run up his stats and hit a few homers that helped uh, make a little bit more separation between him and the next highest guy, it'd probably be a point of conversation and discussion. And maybe it's not something that every voter would weigh or would even be aware of right. if the stats did not take that into account. So I'm not against The idea of having some sort of Quality of competition adjustment I I think Baseball reference, you know, already adjusts for like the quality of defense behind a pitcher, maybe uh, kind of in a blunt way that I don't totally love at times, but it makes that kind of adjustment. I think there is already some sort of adjustment. Kenny Jacklin told me they, they take teams into account for calculating how many runs they expect a pitcher to have allowed, but it's based on teams and not individual matchup quality. And it's just for pitchers, not for hitters. So I'm just saying so I would not object to maybe adding that in or at least making it an option with some of these wars.
0: Yeah. Or like, you know, what what you should do, Ben, is on September first, you should remind me about this. And then what I will do is I will say, Hey Ben Clemens, you know, I write think about it. And then Ben will write it. Mm-hmm. So remind yep. me, okay? This is me this is me laying claim to that idea on behalf of a writer who I haven't talked to about it months in advance. It's like licking a cupcake.
1: <laughs> that one fine That topic, yeah. yeah Yeah, well, good Always uh, think about creating content So maybe the fact that it's not in the war Means that you can make more posts about it
0: Exactly I think that you, you're you now, now we're cooking with gas You know, <laughs> now we're really But I do think that you're right That it, at the very least it's something that Absent a rule That sort of alleviates this problem for us Which I do imagine we're just going to get Sooner rather than later I think that yeah. people are at the league office, you know, this has come across the transom enough times that they're like, we probably should do something about that, you know, mm-hmm. that it's definitely something to, at the very least, be aware of and encourage people who have the sort of mathematical acumen to write about so that we have a sense of how much it really does matter, because it, maybe it really does matter.
1: Yep. Anyway, I'm not suggesting that Aaron Judge doesn't hit Titanic homers off of real pitchers all the time. How (laughs) dare you? I'm not trying to slight Aaron Judge here, just uh, trying to look ahead. There have been some cases in the past where, you know, someone who's in a central division that perhaps is weaker, I mean, I don't want to say that it's going to like make someone who's Looks like he's not having a good year into an MVP year or vice versa. But on the margins, these things can make slight differences. And I think it is sort of fair to adjust for that in theory. So anyway, I'm fascinated by Judge's season and his contract situation, which is something that our pal Craig Goldstein just wrote about for Baseball Prospectus too. Like the idea of how much money has Judge made himself just because the Yankees' reported offer was pretty robust just for yeah. a player of his age and and Craig was looking for comps and not really coming up with a lot of players who have reached free agency at the age that Judge will be reaching free agency especially in this analytics era of paying attention to aging curves and not giving out as many long-term contracts to over 30 position players etc like he would be kind of breaking the mold if he does actually get some team to tack on an extra year or two to what the Yankees offered him although maybe he's at least raising the average annual value with what he is doing this year he certainly has not cost himself a cent that is for sure
0: (laughs) right yeah I think that this is the thing it's like I don't know How much more he is likely to get and I think that even with this incredible season, you know, front offices are clear eyed about both the the stuff we know with some amount of reliability about age and age related decline and are aware of the unknowns that you introduce when it's a person who is literally built like Judge, where there's just mm-hmm. not a lot of precedent for that guy. No, never mind, like, aging into his 30s. There's just, there aren't a lot of guys like that. Like, he is, you know, from a baseball planet far, far away. So yep. it's just not a lot of cops there. But... He hasn't. He sure hasn't cost himself any money. He has certainly seemed to have guaranteed a, a very robust floor. And yes. if you're the Yankees, like I, I know that, like we have made this point a couple of times in a couple of different pieces at FanGraphs, like he, there might there is special value to the Yankees in retaining Judge, right, because of mm-hmm. being able to say like this homegrown player is going to spend like his whole career with you, and you get to you know like. It it will probably mean more in merch and ancillary stuff to them to retain him, and that might sweeten it for him a little bit. So I don't know. Good on you, Aaron yeah. Judge. Like, wow.
1: Yeah. A couple other quick assorted observations. We sang the praises of Luisa Rise earlier this year, and we also sang the praises of FanGraphs Plus stats mm-hmm. leaderboard. That adjust various stats for the league average in that season, so that you can compare easily across seasons in not just WRC Plus, but almost anything, any kind of component, strikeouts, etc. So Luisa Rise, he is batting 354 these days. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's a very high batting average in very almost any high. era. Yeah. That is a high batting average in this era. That is an extremely historically high batting average, and so I was curious. I looked at the plus stats leaderboard for average, so average plus at Fangraphs, and I set a minimum of 300 plate appearances and went back to the beginning of the live ball era, nineteen twenty. Luisa Reis, right now, he has a 147 average plus, so he's almost 50% higher than the league average in batting average this year. That would be tied with 1941 Ted Williams. Is that a historically significant batting average season? That (laughs) seems to ring a bell to me. (laughs) Wowzers! So Ted Williams, in the year that he hit 406, he also had a 147 average plus that year. It was just that the league average for batting average was way higher back then. So in a sense, like everyone's always like, will there ever be a 400 hitter again? There can't be a 400 hitter again. There probably can. It would be extremely difficult to do at this point for various reasons. But in a sense... What Luis Arise is doing to this point, hitting 354 in half a season, is Williams esque, at least relative to the league. The only season that leads those two is also Ted Williams, a much older Ted Williams. 1957 Ted Williams had a 148 average plus. So. This is my new thing that I will be watching for the rest of the season. Can Luisa Rice match or surpass Ted Williams in average plus, which would be extremely, extremely impressive. I kind of doubt that he will do it. He currently has a 378 BABIP, and he is probably a high BABIP guy, but I don't know if it's quite that high, but if he could do it, that would be a really special accomplishment that maybe would be more muted by the fact that we don't pay that close attention to batting titles and batting average anymore, and the league offensive environment is just so low batting average now that that won't leap off the page the way that something that starts with a 4 will, but something that starts with a 3-5 now, that is essentially the same in terms of how impressive it is. So don't sleep on Luisa Rise or on the Fangraphs Plus stats.
0: Yeah, I mean, don't... Um, first, it seems uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and second, it would be to your uh, analytical detriment. Mm-hmm.
1: My other assorted observation is also related to the Twins. The White Sox beat the Twins 9-8 to on Wednesday, and it was a weird, wild game where the White Sox trailed five times, and they kept coming back to tie it, most notably on an eighth-inning Andrew Vaughn home run. But in that game earlier, Andrew Vaughn tried the hidden ball trick. So we have various spies out there, various scouts who were watching and and letting us know about this. And it's, it's happened so frequently, these failed hidden ball trick attempts, since we started lamenting the lack of hidden ball tricks, that I am now pretty confident that this is actually attempted all the time and it just doesn't work and we just don't notice. So I went and watched this because uh, Patreon supporter Chris Hanel told me that this had happened. He's a Twins fan, and he just happened to be watching the game. None of the broadcasts that I listened to even mentioned that this happened because it was just such a a quick thing. The Twins had a pinch runner on Gilberto Celestino, and he had just gotten to first base, which I don't know if that seems like a an opportune time to try this or an unwise time to try this because if you have a pinch runner who just entered the game you might say well he's not like acclimated to his surroundings yet and maybe this is uh, the opportunity is ripe to try to catch him here on the other hand if you're a pinch runner like you have one job which is like to run and to not get picked off and make it out on the bases so maybe you'd be hyper aware of your surroundings at that time I don't know anyway he tried for the Todd Helton style hidden ball trick and the runner just dove back to first and Vaughn made a a fake throw back to the mound and looked down just to see if he had caught Celestino and Celestino didn't even seem to be looking and he was still reaching and touching the bag so Vaughn just threw back but it seemed like routine like it, it wouldn't be notable except for the fact that we haven't seen a successful hidden ball trick in so long but I think it's just been bubbling under the surface this whole time, just going largely unremarked upon because it hasn't actually paid off. So I take back anything I said about players being remiss in not trying this. I think they are trying it, and I think it's just not working because uh, players are calling time or players or base coaches are vigilant or whatever it is. It's not paying off, but I think that the desire is still alive
0: but that also complicates our understanding of of the whole thing. It takes it takes away one of our pillars of explanation around this because one of our theories about why this doesn't get attempted more often is that guys are are worried that they will fail and then feel embarrassed. And yeah. this suggests to me that that's not true because they're just doing it all the time, so they don't feel true. embarrassed. Maybe they should feel more embarrassed because they're failing. <laughs> so, no, I'm not <laughs> inviting you to feel embarrassed. I think it's fine that you try stuff and it doesn't work. It's fine. It's fine, guys. Don't worry about it. Don't, Michael Lorenzen, we don't want any emails. And they wouldn't come <laughs> from you probably, but like, you know, don't. It's okay. We're not mm-hmm. knocking it. We're just saying this. Clarifies our understanding in yep. a in a confusing sort of way
1: <laughs> yes. And another follow-up, we talked recently about the fact that Justin Turner has had the same walk-up song for a really long time, and we talked about why walk-up songs don't tend to have the same longevity as entrance songs for closers, and there isn't as much pageantry associated with them either. We talked about this when Jake Mintz was on an episode. Well, we got an email from Morgan, Patreon supporter, and she wrote in to point out that There is another example of a late 30s NL West player who has stuck with maybe an outmoded walk-up song for quite some time. Charlie Blackman of the Rockies, she says, always walks up to Your Love by The Outfield. Another amusing choice. It's so consistent that the crowd at the game sings along with the song and the stadium sound guy cuts off the tonight at the end of the first verse so you can hear the crowd singing. Again, can be heard on the MLB audio broadcasts. I used to live in Colorado, which is why I know about this phenomenon. So she says she can't hear your love and not think of Chuck Nasty in baseball, just like Enter Sandman and Hell's Bells make me think a closer is coming on. So Charlie Blackmon, not just Justin Turner. He's doing it, too.
0: I wonder. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, I um, what would your walk up song be, Ben?
1: That is just it's such a high pressure question. I'm just you're putting me on the spot and I don't know. I, I like a lot of songs, and just to narrow one. I like down a one. lot
0: of songs. You don't have to. You just think about it. You know, just yeah, just uh, have some have some rumination yeah. on that concept.
1: I will. Mine would probably be pretty mellow. I think, <laughs> just because I'm a pretty mellow person, and you are, I don't you're think, mellow, you're a mellow guy. Yeah, I don't know that a walk up song would pump me up. Really, I don't know if it has the capacity to pump me up, which is probably one reason why I'm not a Major League Baseball player, (laughs) one among many, but I would want to stick with it. I like this idea of keeping the same one and being associated with a walk-up song, but that really puts the pressure on because you have to hear that thing so many times per game, and if you're sticking with it for years, you better get a good choice, and also, I guess it better be a good sing-along song for the fan participation element that Blackman has here, so... I'm gonna have to ponder and mull and stew on this one for a while.
0: Yeah, I, I go back and forth amongst a variety of options and so I don't have an answer either. But yeah, mellow is good. You know, like I think that there's there's room to do mellow counter programming.
1: Yes, yeah, play against type with the walk up signs. Yeah, I'm all yeah, for that. Yeah,
0: yeah, you can just indicate like I am in a I am in a zone. I am in a, a cool collected uh zone. hmm Yeah.
1: And also, because this is a play that we both enjoyed, there was a weird ending to a Dodgers-Rockies game on Wednesday where the Dodgers and Mookie Betts walked off, although not technically a walk-off. There was running involved here. It was a game-ending play. That pedantic email has just ruined (laughs) walk-off for me (laughs) forever. I can never say or think about walk-offs anymore without thinking, was it a walk-off or was it actually just a game-ending play? Anyway this was a game-ending play that most people would call a walk-off where the bases were loaded at this point. But even before it got to that point, it was the bottom of the ninth of a 1-1 game in L.A. And Cody Bellinger led off with a single. And then the Rockies put the shift on for Gavin Lux. Okay, Lux is a lefty. Fine. Makes sense. But he mishit a ball and just sort of dribbled it by where the shortstop would have been had the shift not been on. So that was funny. I mean, it's not Lowell Rockies. This happens. Sometimes you beat the shift by accident, but it did come back to bite them. So then it was first and third, no outs. Then Will Smith came up pinch-hitting Frost and Barnes, and Bud Black brought in an outfielder, brought in... I think Garrett Hampson, he replaced Randall Grichuk, and he was kind of the infield rover. And then there was a two-man outfield, if we are counting Charlie Blackman. <laughs> Poor Charlie Blackman, but not the outfielder he once was, perhaps. Anyway, yeah. that's a joke that Patrick Dubuque made in his write-up at Baseball Prospectus. So this was a, a five-player infield. Not unheard of, not unusual in a walk-off situation, really. Although somewhat surprising, maybe just because Smith hits a lot of balls in the air, so maybe was not the best candidate. But you know, you had a fast guy in Bellinger at third, and he's going to score on most balls hit to the outfield. So sure, why not? The Rockies don't shift a lot, perhaps unsurprisingly. But this is not something that never happens. But in this case, it. Kind of backfired again, even though it it wasn't necessarily a, a bad decision for the Rockies to do this. But as it turned out, Mookie bets like there was a a walk, so Smith walked, and who knows, maybe that's because uh, he was out of sorts with this shift behind him or the pressure of the situation or whatever. But then Mookie comes up, and Mookie kind of plays right into the shift, sort of. This was like why you do the five person infield except (laughs) it didn't work because he like bounced a little ball just to the left of the mound and there were like four different fielders there because everyone was in and so the player who fielded it just like couldn't get the throw off really because there was like another player in his way. I don't know that he would have been able to get the out anyway necessarily, but Jose Iglesias like kind of cut off rogers who fielded the ball so he just sort of dropped it instead of being able to make a throw yeah it didn't have
0: a clean it would have taken a lot to do it it probably wouldn't have happened but like not in a position to even make an attempt because of how this went
1: right yeah and the third baseman was just sort of standing there not being able to do anything and also kind of oddly i guess they they were holding the runner on first which seemed sort of strange i don't know why they were doing that unless it was like to cut off a ball down the line or something but Anyway, it was just kind of comedic and also the sort of thing that I would miss if we do get a shift ban next year. And I don't know what form that would take, but it would presumably prevent the initial shift that helped set up this rally and then maybe would also do away with the five-person infield. I don't know, depending on how the rule is drawn up. And so I would miss the occasional comedic situations where even when the shift is properly or wisely deployed yes sometimes the ball just bounces the wrong way or <laughs> there are too many fielders in one place and something silly happens and i'm all for something silly happening on baseball fields so i am in favor of silliness i endorse silliness Unless it gets to the point of position player pitching, when it goes from silly to tiresome, <laughs> and maybe the shift has for some people, but yeah. I would be sorry if we could not see these kind of hijinks happening as soon as next season.
0: Yeah, we need we need hijinks potential, and I get yeah. it. Like if hijinks potential goes unchecked, you well you get position players pitching as much as they are. Right? Like there needs to be some bumpers on the hijinks. Yes. That's a weird sentence, but you want there to be the possibility of some amount of hijinks.
1: Yeah, moderate amount.
0: Yeah, and they need to be balanced against other things, right? Because I know somewhere someone is saying, well, this is why you should still have to throw four pitches for an intentional walk. And it's like there, Mm -hmm. the return on hijinks investment is too low (laughs) to justify, right? But this this is is good hijinks, good potential for hijinks. I mean, I'm sure that the Rockies are like, these hijinks suck. These are bad hijinks. We <laughs> yeah. don't care for these hijinks. The, the holding, holding Lux on first was one of the things in real time where I'm like, why are you doing that? I don't, yeah. really quite, I don't quite get. And there's something about like making a point of like a substitution in order to do this. <laughs> yep. And then having it go like this where it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, these are like <laughs> chef's kiss hijinks. Again, mm-hmm. not for the Rockies. No. They hate these hijinks. But mm-hmm. I will say, plan better hijinks than you guys. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: And lastly, we are speaking on July 7th. So this is the three-month anniversary of opening day. And on each one-month anniversary of opening day, I have given you a list of the biggest playoff odds changes over that preceding month. So according to the Fangraphs playoff odds, these are the changes, the biggest changes in odds of making the playoffs over the previous 30 days. So we've got the Braves. They are up About 23 percentage points. Things are really looking up for Atlanta. Started slow, but they are at about a 97% chance to make the playoffs. And now they are up to more than a 40% chance to win the division. So Mets fans perhaps stressing these days. Yeah. Even though Max Scherzer is back and Jacob DeCrom is making rehab starts. The Braves have been winning an awful lot, and they're nipping on the Mets' heels, so they've put themselves in a much better position than they were when we last did this a month ago.
0: It's like, you know, here's the problem, Ben, is that those guys, they don't hit. That's what they, that's mm. what they, need. they need. They need some offense. They need some runs. Preventing the runs? Valuable. <laughs> Scoring them? Also good. Yeah, because yeah. right now they're two and a half, Atlanta, just two and a half back, you Oof. know? Just two and a half, that's...
1: Too close for comfort, fans, yeah.
0: You don't want to be in a position where someone can reasonably say they're only a couple of games back and someone can't really pedantically object to the use of a couple. Like, I know the half game (laughs) makes it a little sketchy, but like, uh, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. look out, look out.
1: Yep. And the Red Sox are up about 22 percentage points over that span. That is almost all wild card odds because yeah. the Yankees are still really running they, away with their division. They're still the Yankees. Yeah. Yes. And then you have the Twins at plus 12 percentage points. So things are looking up for them and they have actually crossed the 50-50 point when it comes to division odds. So that's something that's encouraging, although the Guardians are giving them a run for their money and the White Sox still exist and <laughs> might win some games at some point. And also the Phillies. Things have looked up for the Phillies. They are up more than 11 percentage points and are now at about a 40% chance to make the playoffs to win a wild card. So things have turned around for them, whether coincidentally or not, in the post Joe Girardi era. And actually, I, I guess. Since we had Fernando Perez on to talk about the Giants, <laughs> the Giants have not had the greatest time of it. No. And actually, have the Phillies moved ahead of the Giants now? They're right there, right? They're right there. I
0: think they're right there. They are,
1: they? are in fact, one game ahead of oh. the Giants as we speak. Oh. So. I guess <laughs> on the plus side, my preseason prediction, which I was immediately ready to recant that the Phillies would win the third NL card over the Cardinals and the Giants, that's actually looking a lot better right now and would be looking much better if not for Bryce Harper's injury. Yeah. Although these are all teams, I mean, Phillies, the Giants, the Braves, I mean, the Braves have been known to add some bats at the deadline in recent memory. Like these yeah. teams will be upgrading. And I think the ingredients are there for a pretty active trade deadline, but that's a topic for a future episode. Anyway, it is neck and neck and neck, I guess, between those teams with the Marlins not too far behind. (laughs) Do we have to talk about necks the way we talked about backs and bellies? I'm just trying
0: to imagine, like, getting all your necks on each other. It's like, (laughs) that would be, I mean, your shoulders. this is another problem with shoulders. This is another Mm -hmm. shoulder-related problem. Like, what do we make of the, anyway?
1: The remaining significant gainer, your, sort of your, Seattle Mariners yeah. are up more than eight percentage points and have about a one in five chance of making the playoffs now after their slow start. Oh, that been Looking up for them, too. They're uh, about to break even. They're 41 and 42 as we speak.
0: About to. You're so- Maybe. Coming with the confidence <laughs> of- Yeah, they have to deal with the these blue jays, you know. That's that's their new that's their latest challenge. Although I I think that maybe Gaussman is not gonna pitch for them in that. Ron, maybe? Who could say? For the Blue Jays, that is not for the Mariners. Mm-hmm. If he pitched for the Mariners, we'd probably have different conversations about the Seattle Mariners.
1: Yes. You know, yeah.
0: one of the things we talk about is that they'd be a better team. Yeah. Um, I I am here to submit that I think that maybe Seattle should just try to make their entire roster out of Julio. They should just... Why don't they build mm-hmm. the whole plane out of Julios? You know, yeah. that, that Julio...
1: Ben. Yeah, Julio's and, and Logan Gilberts and yeah. that, that young core kind of coming together. I, I know Kelnick's slugging at AAA. Maybe we'll see him again at some point. And Matt Brash is striking out tons yeah, of dudes I there too. I don't know so. what
0: to make of Matt Brash. He's yeah, he is a confusing cat, that Matt Brash. I don't know what
1: to make of either of those guys. But, yeah. uh,
0: but you know, Ben, mm-hmm. you, you take a peek at this Julio Rodriguez and um, yeah. he's pretty... His uh he's he's pretty fun. I'm yes. I don't know if I don't know what'll happen with that Seattle team. I don't know. I'm fascinated by how they think about the deadline. Like they are one of the teams where I'm like, what are you guys gonna what are yeah. you up to? What are you up to in there? What is rolling around in the old noggin? But I am so happy for Seattle fans that at least, at least they get this resplendent young person who just seems to be having a great time, you know, Mm -hmm. really focused, keen to lift his guys up, playing some really good ball, just a lot of fun. There's so much fun in the profile too, right? Because Julio, it's like, oh, he doesn't just steal bases, although steals steals a bunch of bags, you know, after all the consternation about his speed. And then, you know, he doesn't just hit home runs, although he hits, you know, he hits some home runs, not as many as like, as Aaron Judge, but still like a mm-hmm. good number of them. And uh, yep. you know, he's he's playing better defense and center than I expected yeah. him to do. So like what a what a good fun time, you know. Mm-hmm. You need you need those those uh players to hold on to when the rest of it isn't quite coming together the way you hoped it would. And he's definitely one of those dudes for them. So that's so exciting.
1: Right. And I guess Ty France is back and then maybe you get Kyle Lewis back and you Perhaps get Mitch Henniger back and Yeah. yeah
0: and it's, then and it's <laughs> You cooking you cooking with some Yes, mm-hmm. maybe. Could have be. you seen have you seen the video that Seattle put together for Ty France's All Star <laughs> candidacy? Yes. Can I say the best part of that video? Like it is very funny. We will link to it. It is delightful the fun that they are having with this. I think it is also a good reminder for folks that like you know, I don't think his season of baseball is coming together the way that he hoped it would and certainly the way that Jared DePoto hoped it would. So sorry about that, but this is just a a nice reminder about Abraham Toro being a talented person cuz mm-hmm. as you all might have guessed, if you have not seen the video, you know, they are making they are having some fun with the fact that Thai France's last name is France, and so mm-hmm. this video is in french and uh is is put together uh in such a way as to you know draw on some of those trips but but Abraham Toro is from Montreal, and so he speaks many languages. Uh, he is fluent in English and Spanish and French, and uh, he is the one narrating this video, and it is yeah. delightful. Sorry to spoil the end. Sorry. It's been on Twitter <laughs> no. for a couple of days, so I feel justified, but uh, anyway, yes. go check that out.
1: I guess he lost some playing time to Carl Santana, potentially, but he has picked up some voiceover work, so that's something. Yeah. He, yeah. also,
0: he also runs like he has been riding a horse for several days. That is one <laughs> of my favorite things about Abraham Toro. That sounds like I'm criticizing him, but it's not. It is, it is, it is weird and it is fun to watch.
1: So yeah, those are the Mariners. Kind of what we expected that they would be a better team with a worse record than yeah. they were last year. But maybe they will still make a little late season run at it. We'll see. Could be true. Anyway, just to finish this up, the biggest losers in terms of playoff odds over the last 30 days, they are, as you would expect, the teams that have lost ground to some of the teams we just talked about. So you have the Giants who have lost about 18 percentage points. You have the Cardinals who have lost about 15. The White Sox have lost about 16 And then, why not, we can throw in the Angels, who have lost about 16 (laughs) points of playoff percentage, too, because uh, why not? So, them and the Blue Jays are down about 7 percentage points, and the Padres down about 6 as well.
0: Yep, yep.
1: That's your monthly check-in. And to end, as always, we have the Past Blast. This comes to us from Richard Hirschberger. Historian, saber researcher, author of Strike Four, The Evolution of Baseball. This is episode 1872. This is a past blast from 1872, 150 years ago. Richard writes, May 13th, Troy versus the Athletics of Philadelphia. The bases are loaded. McBride is the runner at third. Force is the Troy's shortstop. How appropriate. Force play. Every play involving force is a force play. Wes Fissler comes to bat. Here's the Philadelphia Evening City item, May 14th, 1872. After waiting for some time, Fissler popped one up that dropped directly into force's hands, and then out again, being purposely missed by that individual in order to make a double play. McBride, of course being under the impression that he was forced off third base, attempted to run home, and amidst a scene of undescribable confusion, the umpire decided that Fissler was also out, caught on the fly by force, This really confuses things in an Abbott and Costello kind of way. But on what rule he based that decision, we confess that we are at a loss to know, as the ball just momentarily touched force's hands and was not held long enough to constitute a catch. So, Richard writes, this play, little noted at the time and even less since, is the genesis of the infield fly rule. So if you will recall, I I believe, I think it was 1864 maybe when we did a pass blast, there was an infield fly, but no infield fly rule yet. So here we are in 1872, and there is a rule. So Richard writes, the question is, did force muff the catch, or did he catch the ball and then drop it? The umpire took an expansive view of what constituted a catch ruling the batter out on the fly. The writer here disagrees because the ball was only momentarily in force's hands. The umpire's view of the matter went beyond this one play, as this was Nicholas Young, the secretary of the National Association, whose founding we discussed on our last Pass Blast. He would go on to be the secretary of the National League, and eventually its president until 1902. Young's views carried weight. The language of momentarily held was added to the rules in 1874, so still a couple years in the future here. The infield fly rule took its modern form 20 years later, but was not new. It had been there all along, hidden by obscure rules language. So if you hate the infield fly rule, now you know whom to blame. But consider the alternative, endless super slow motion replays from multiple angles until New York issues a ruling whether the ball was muffed or caught, then later dropped, bringing to baseball the worst part of NFL games. So... Richard also noted that if he were to make any tweak to the infield fly rule, which uh, I think he is generally fine with, but he says, if I could change the rule, I would make it apply only if the fielder touches the ball The umpire would still have to call it as soon as possible, but this call would be contingent on the ball being touched, just as it already is contingent on the ball being fair. If the ball falls untouched, there is no question of whether it was muffed or caught, then subsequently dropped. If the fielder can turn this into a double play, more power to him. But we had to have a rule for this sort of situation.
0: Right. It's amazing what you have to have rules for, you know?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, we will end there. Another reminder, the 10th anniversary of Effectively Wild is coming up later this month, and we want to include listeners' voices on some of our anniversary-themed episodes. So please do send us some tributes or testimonials or whatever you want to call them. Just 30-second clips, audio recordings on phones are fine, explaining why you like the podcast or what you get out of it or what role it has played in your life, whatever comes to mind. Just introduce yourself, say your piece, keep it snappy. We've gotten some good ones already, and we hope to hear from more of you by July 15th. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free aside from our StatHead sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. Josh, Patrick Vance, Andrew Wynn Scott Rosen, and Luis Torres, thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the patrons-only Discord group, nearing 700 members, as well as monthly bonus episodes, discounts on t-shirts, playoff live streams, and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com group effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And look up the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon.